And when you talk about the complexity of such what should be a simple thing, the uh, draft variation is a 49-page document. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Trust me, Ian, I know that. I had to read it. You know, so once again, we read it, listeners, so you don't have to. Welcome to Bruce News Week, episode 412, recorded today, Thursday, the 30th of March, 2023. I'm your host, Sabrina Kunz, and today I'm joined by regular returning guest, Ian Watson. Hi, Ian. Hey, Sabrina. How are you? Good. And also former host and newly returned from travels, Matt Kierkegaard. Welcome back. Thank you very much. And uh, Ian, thank you. I uh, was listening back to last week's podcast and you know caught the fact that Ian was the most regular guest. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we owe, we owe it to him. So um, not a whole lot in direct news this week, but a lot going on in the industry. Um, that's really interesting from sort of all, all sorts of angles. We've been getting media releases over the last couple of weeks. So lots of interesting stuff going on. Top of the news hour, though, Asahi to close Green Beacon Production Brewery and retain Brewpub. Asahi Beverages has announced it will be closing Green Beacon's production brewery in the Brisbane suburb of Jibung while investing in the brewery's original Tenerife Brewpub. Jibung has been home for more than six years and has driven much of our recent success, said their most recent general manager. However, we're experiencing significant growth and have now outgrown the site. Today's announcement means Green Beacon can continue its growth trajectory by unlocking capacity constraints, which will help ensure we continue to get it to lovers of Green Beacon everywhere. Uh, Further down, the statement from Green Beacon noted the closure will result in the loss of three full-time positions and two casual positions with the remaining G-Bung employees to transfer to the Tenerife Brew Pub. So um, lots of comments online about uh, about this move by Asahi. We published the official statements. The, That's right. The official <laughs> reason. Uh, and, you know, in the absence of anyone speaking otherwise, um, you know, it's just very hard to, to counter it. Um, the, the, look, the, the, the reality is um, Green Beacon is the fifth of five breweries um, that are in the um, acquisition sphere um, from, you know, since Asahi and CUB came together. I would be very surprised if, given the volumes of, of Green Beacon that we're seeing around, that they've outgrown that production facility. I think the reality is there's a huge um, shortfall across the, you know, uh, uh, across the portfolio of brands, um, and they can save money by closing one. It's nice to see that the original brew pub is staying open, which gives the brand some, you know, when I first saw a media release land on my desk saying Green Beacon in the title, I thought it was, you know, we're selling it, we're closing it completely. Um, they haven't done that, but yeah, and no, I look, it, it, it's been fascinating to, to, to watch Green Beacon, you know, lingering on without any real love from, from the parent company. Yeah, it certainly has felt a little bit ignored. Um, for a few years by them, and uh, I think everyone's um, pretty sure that there's been some fantastic beer come out of both of those sites. Um, but there's economic realities, uh, and when you've got a structure such as Asahi has, there are more economical ways to to make beer um, and still keep what is perhaps Green Beacon's strongest point, which is their their brew pub. Um, you've got the, the the best flow of 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 income through there, and you've got resources through the other breweries to be able to produce the um the bulk beer. Yeah, and I think look, there's been a lot of commentary online both supporting that they've outgrown production or hoping that they've outgrown production and then other folks being more sceptical about um, that being factually true. But what has been consistent, and there was a great question from Richard Mannion, if I've pronounced that correctly, Richard, Bruce News, is there any underlying information on articles as to why the big boys, and I've inverted commas that myself, continue on this ridiculous path of destruction um, that you have or can share? That was the question. 
And in the last couple of days, we've seen, you know, Matt's recently written about the closure of Tiny Mountain by Lion. And we've also seen um, AB InBev in the US uh, shuttering uh, a whole lot of its locations. So certainly this comment about whether there is a... Um, uh, a path uh, that certainly seems to be accurate. So the large breweries are taking a look at their craft portfolios uh, and um, in these tightening economic conditions uh, are retreating to, you know, I don't want to say their core business, um, but the places they started from before they decided that craft was sexy. Yeah, look, I, I think the easy answer to that question is money. Um, yeah, of course. You know, because... To maintain a network of breweries that all require staff around the country um, doesn't work. And, and that's the, the interesting thing about um, Green Beacon. And a lot of people message me to say that they'd gone back to listen to the conversation I had with one of the founders, Adrian um, Slaughter, on the day that they sold. And, you know, he was... Um, very confident um, that they'd negotiated a better deal than anyone you know, had before them and that the, the, they were going to be given autonomy. And that just didn't work out. Um, you know, they, they in, in fact, you know, as an outside observer, they seemed to be the, the, the ones that had the least autonomy of any of the brands that mm. were acquired, except maybe Mountain Goat. Um, you know, Mountain Goat very quickly just became you know, goat beer. Um, yeah. And very little else. Um, Green Beacon, you know, has has had a few others. But when you look at, you know, Four Pines, um, the owners stayed in for five years. I believe um, Jaron, you know, finished up formally last year. Pirate Life is coming up to five years. I think later this year um, since their acquisition. Bolter is own, you know, is four years into their five year. Um, acquisition. But those last three brands have still kept a very strong presence um, and seem to have grown. I mean, Pirate Life has opened a number of uh, venues. Um, Bolter has expanded significantly and the brand has grown. And I think when you've got founders that have negotiated, you know, some level of power, but also have an earnout, mm -hmm. um, they're able to use that earnout to make sure that their brand is nurtured and loved. And otherwise you've got legal, you know, remedies. Um, if if the brand isn't growing and you're being stymied by the by the acquirer when yeah. you're um, and and we haven't seen that with with Green Bacon that but to, to sort of change the topic a little bit you know going back to the, the 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 first point that it's about money this is where Mighty Craft was never ever going to work having a network of five six seven small breweries around the country and talking about building scale. You can't build scale when breweries can't support the scale themselves and you've got a very expensive cost model. Although I don't want to um, uh, predetermine a little update we're going to give later on Tribe, but capacity for scale actually doesn't necessarily make you money either. <laughs> so yeah. so we're, we're, right, so we're going to discuss it a little bit later on, but when we're talking about, and Ian and I talked about it a little bit last week, um, and I reiterated your analogy, Matt, of the sort of the spinning. Um, oh, no, I know. I heard and, and added your right, own little uh, interpretation. Yeah. But so I think there is still this <laughs> secret sauce that needs to happen, whether you're super large or super small. But I think you know the bit that I saw in this, in terms of Richard's point around kind of trends, uh, there was an article in the last week in Vine Pair, uh, and the headline was. AB InBev bought its way into Craft Brewing Corner. Now it's trying to cut its way out. And it was really talking about how the big corporates saw uh, craft, again, in, in quotes, um, at the bleeding edge of innovation, what people wanted in and around the 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, jumped on the bandwagon and went, yep, we're going to try and use some of this secret sauce to continue where maybe other things weren't, make sure we got a foot in all camps. And now they're sort of saying the underlying economics are not stacking up to make that gamble worth it. And if overall drinking of our product is down, we're going to keep people in our core brands and we'll let other people sort of feed off the edges. Okay, here's here's a hot take for you both. Um, and I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this. Um, 
It's fun to have you ma- back, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Now, hear, hear me out, and this is going to generate discussion. Um, we, we, we might even sort of post this into the um, Facebook group. I don't think the big brewers have changed their mind. I think they were right all along. The reason that the big brewers were so slow into craft beer was that they knew that it was only ever going to be a fraction of the market. And it was a fraction of the market that was going to be divided amongst hundreds of breweries so that you couldn't make money out of it. And that people didn't want, en masse, the flavors that craft brewers were pushing out. Craft beer was always a niche. They got into it when they had to because, you know, again, I maintain that the Stone and Wood sale was purely about protecting tap points for mainstream beer, not about making money from Stone and Wood itself. And craft beer was a, we need to do this to, you know, maintain relationships and and all of these sorts of things. I don't think, but I think they were right. And we ran an article six or seven years ago um, from a podcast I did with the head of marketing for... CUB that he was pilloried for at the time saying IPA isn't going to be a thing it's always going to be a niche beer and I think he was right um, so you know if, if you extrapolate that craft beer was a blip craft beer was a bulge that's going to gradually be ironed out and it depends how you define craft but I think actually the innovation on the beer front is is moving to these beyond beer categories um, and other alcoholic products. And in the time frame that craft beer got its bubble, there's been this whole other cultural movement around drinking less overall. That's actually got nothing to do with beer uh, or innovation in beer or craft beer. That's got to do with an overall societal systemic change. Um, and so, and I'm not sure that folks sitting in alcohol in 2014 saw that trend reaching or having the impact overall on on the total alcohol pie as much as it clearly is. Um, and Matt, I know, I'm not going to go into it's gone from a zero percent to a two percent. Oh no, no, no I'm yeah. not. I'm not talking about beer or any category. I'm just saying people overall are drinking less. Mm alcohol and the data tells us that so if they're drinking less alcohol they're certainly drinking less of beer in whatever percentage of beer they i were will drinking. say to that though that i mean that, that 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 was always what i saw the strength of craft beer um you know if you go back mm. to the mid 2000s yeah. you already and i remember looking at um you know amount of alcohol Australians consume, amount of alcohol Australians consumers, beer charts. And it was just, you know, it would have been a fantastic downhill ski run because it was all downhill. So that's nothing new in the last 15 years. The challenge that the brewing industry was facing was beer was a, if you had one, you had 10 proposition. Um, So people drank a lot and they drank often. And craft beer provided the drink less, drink better, pay more um, opportunity for the industry where we can lock a little bit more value in to the product that people buy. So even if they're drinking less, we can still maintain you know, a profitability because we've built brand value and brand integrity in, in beer that was never there. Now, that might have been a pipe dream on my part, but you know certainly... Even craft brewers, and by craft brewers I mean small brewers, um, have done nothing to make beer, and I don't want to make this sound wanky, but increase the perceived value of the product that they're making. They have joined the race to the bottom. Um, And that's a generalisation, right, Matt? And Ian, we're going to come to you because this is something you're quite passionate about. (laughs) But Matt, that's a gross generalisation because individually there have been a lot of individuals and businesses that have tried to do that. But en masse with the speed of new entrants to market, anyone, it's not like as a collective of 700 plus businesses and brands. Everyone competes with the worst actor. That's right. So, so we shouldn't say it's a blanket thing that nobody has tried. It's certainly that plenty of people. But but I'm talking about as an industry, as an industry, and but also the industry hasn't called out the people that are lowering the tone or 
chasing the bottom, you know, because no one wants to, to, to point the finger. But everyone has to compete with the, and, and, you know, for anyone that wonders why I bang on about things like um, equity crowdfunding or, you know, the, the perception of beer or calling, you know, saying that I'm a booze slinger as opposed to a beer salesman, um, all of those things, you know, in isolation, they don't do much, but they provide the gravity that drags down an entire industry. And, you know, as I say about crowdfunding, if you have to compete with the brewery down the road that gets a million dollars free that it never has to pay back, never has to account for, never has to justify what it's doing with it, but it just has that money in the bank for nothing, and you've got to actually sell beer against that brewery, you are at a significant disadvantage. And, you know, if the brewery down the road is selling uh, beer into trade at an unsustainable price, hoping that it will get volume or scale or whatever, or even to drive the competitors out of the market, you are lowering the value of beer. You are making it harder for businesses that are trying to be sustainable. And, you know, so everyone competes with the worst players in the market. And they, you know, the crocodile takes the last man. Um, you know, everyone's dragged down and slowed down by the worst performers. Um, and, and, and that's why, you know, that's why I bang the drums that I do. Ian, any thoughts? <laughs> wow, this is um, a reminder of, of being with um, Matt and Sabrina both in the same podcast again. Um, I, I love it. I love just sitting back and and, uh, and listening to you two bounce off each other. Um, yeah, look, I, I can't say I disagree um, with Matt there. We haven't done um, – now, this is starting to get to a long bow out from, the, from our original story here, <laughs> but I can't say I, I, I disagree that we as an industry haven't done a lot to keep our um, – our value in our product uh, and we have let ourselves slide and we're forcing each we do force each other to slide when you are competing against um, certain tactics or certain ways of doing business that can force other breweries to have to start to make moves in in those directions as well um, and in maintaining our value as Matt said in something that's a lower um, volume but a higher margin a more premium price point and keeping the whole drink less drink better thing we have made a lot of moves um over the last 20 years further away from it than than we were back then um and what the look was even even the way that the larger players uh their craft brands even the way that um say mold shovel beers were presented and what they were pushing for what chuck was pushing forward through with that then or what uh brad was doing with Matilda Bay, Brad and Ross, um, in the way that their beers were moved into the market. So the pricing for Matilda Bay, um, a six-pack of Matilda Bay beer circa the early 2000s, or let's say 2005, uh, is probably not much different to what it is now. And as we know, the cost of everything else has gone up in the meantime. So really, that's been a reduction in the sales um, price of that beer, significant reduction over that time. Now, sales price isn't the only thing that determines um, how something is presented, but that does show you the pressures that are on even the larger players um, with with how their beer's got to go out there. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't say I'm in, in, in disagreement with that at all. So I don't want to paint a segue between talking about this, this article started from what have Asahi done um, with Green Beacon to a conversation about the industry writ large and a little bit of criticism at small breweries. And we've been using the term craft, but I think interchangeably what we were really talking about was smaller breweries. And so we should distinguish small breweries uh, from independent breweries. And um, the IBA um, have released a... Uh, awareness campaign that's going national aimed at ensuring consumers can quickly and easily identify what beer is made by Australian independent brewers. They're calling the campaign How to Spot an Independent Craft Beer. A new campaign behind every great Aussie indie has been designed to explain exactly what independence means, to tell the stories behind the beer and provide information on how and where to find it. And the IBA have made their assets for the indie seal available to their members and uh, sort of lobbying and promoting it behind it and doing a promotional campaign. So that's a fairly significant step 
towards some of the things Matt was talking about in terms of um, educating and preserving value and seeking to make a statement about why something is worth more, perhaps more dollars. Um, but certainly there was a bit of a conversation online when Brizzy's posted um, the news release around some smaller breweries uh, saying essentially it's not fair that there's this campaign for IBA members and not for non-members. I think fairly quickly that conversation, um, Matt uh, joined in fairly emphatically to say, yes, but look at all of the things that the IBA does on behalf of smaller breweries um, that if you are not a member, you gain the benefits of, most of which include lobbying, etc. And actually, all small breweries should be paying a fee towards this and being excluded from the indie campaign is um, is really a small penalty to pay for not supporting the organisation. So, um, you know, good luck. Let's hope it actually does well and reaches not just beer consumers, but does something to educate beyond beer consumers uh, as a bit of a category campaign. Yeah, hundred. And look, you know, just on the the comments, anyone that saw my comments, you know, I, I was pretty pro the IBA in that, which anyone who listens to this podcast will know that, you know, I, I think the IBA is critical to representing the interests of small brewers, but it's not perfect, it's not unfortunate, but it, and it is essentially a compromise, and those compromises can and should be discussed. But on this one, and I, you know, I, I also feel for the for the brewer who made that comment that, yes, this does create a brand that other independents may lose. You know, if you see that brand and you choose that brand over another independent, um, that's a detriment to other small independent brewers. Um, but to put it, you can say you're independent on on your label. There's nothing stopping anyone from saying we're an independent brewery that logo and the capital and the you know, and the value in that logo comes from the integrity of that logo that costs money and time and effort and resources and passion from members to create and if you want to get the benefit of that um you know what if you're a couple of hundred thousand liters it's eleven hundred dollars a year i mean that's not a huge expense when you know we're, i think we're going to come to the uh, pregnancy label, you know, there's very complicated uh, negotiations going with the ATO about um, economic independence, all of which the, the the IBA is doing with a very, very, very small team for what are very, very complicated issues. And you get all of that for free because they're representing the interests of all brewers, regardless of whether you're a, a member or not. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that if you want to use the mem the, the, that, that logo, you should pay for it because it, you know it, 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 it's it's valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is this is great. It's just helping to to keep raising the awareness of um, what independent beer is, and that does um, benefit those even if you aren't a member of the association and able to put on there because you still can write on there that you're independent. You just can't use that certified logo. Um, so it still does help uh, out in that way. And for for the members, this is this is part of what everyone pays for, and I, I would highly encourage uh, anyone to become a member of the IBA if you are an independent brewery, because it's uh, steps like this that are part of what you pay your membership fees for, and and um, yeah, using all our strengths, um, using all our strengths together. And to put, the cynic in me says, campaigns like this about what does being indie mean will start conversations about what their values are, what the values of being independent are, because um, what has been shown through the research that the IBA did is that consumers don't necessarily value independence in and of itself. They value um, the things that independence means to them, which is more likely to be uh, owned local, employs local, uh, a high usage of local ingredients is perceived. Uh, and there are a range of things. And I encourage you to get to get in and look at the material provided by the IBA. But I guess the point that I'm making is um, if, if the industry at writ large has learned the lessons of where we are at right now in terms of a fight for the bottom, 
Could this indie campaign and the values that it enunciates be the start of building a new foundation that really enables small breweries to make the argument about why their product is premium and deserves more beyond this is what it costs us to produce. So I actually think there's an opportunity to rally behind this and set a new foundation of expected values. And the second step there from, because Matt's smiling, can be to address some of those issues of um, because we've all signed up to these are our values, we're no longer going to tolerate behaviour X, Y or Z in our industry. And, and that's what I was going to say. That's And if I have a criticism of the IBA, it's a membership body that tries to get all eligible members to be to be members, I, you know, in, in in Matt's little utopia land, um, it would also be a you know a, a crediting body where you know members meet minimum standards, and so that label has that next level thing. That's never going to happen. Um, oh, it could happen. They've introduced the standards of conduct, and there's a brewery, there's a couple of breweries that are no longer members of the IBA. But I think you've got to have. I'm still waiting for labels to be enforced (laughs) you know so my point but this is a great first step in in doing that right which is more than we've seen for the iba in its existence as the iba and we have a thousand mile journey in front of us yes (laughs) if we're wanting those changes um the best way to make those changes is becoming a member of the iba so you can vote and have your say in it 100 percent. if you if you don't you got you got no you, you have nothing to be able to push um in in saying that well the iba is not doing this because you have to be a member in order to to push these changes through and nothing is ever simple in in any organization where it's made up of of members from multiple places the same as community organizations uh been involved in community organizations i'm sure many listeners have and things get difficult there when you've got lots of different opinions and and so forth going on but that's democracy that's the yep. way it works. If we all did things my way, it'd be a better world, but it wouldn't be as <laughs> when, a, an when interesting world. When we run the world. show. Um, so. Yeah, when the revolution comes, um, yeah, it'll be better, but it won't be as interesting. Um, but democracy depends on everyone participating in order for it to be able to work, and the IBA is a democracy. <laughs> a benevolent dictatorship is coming your way, everyone. Yeah. Uh, um, so moving on to a different but related story, uh, for Zan's Food Standards Australia and New Zealand recommends a change to pregnancy labelling following a submission by the Brewers Association of New Zealand and supported by the other beer associations. For Zan's has approved a draft variation to the code designed to resolve an issue with printing the pregnancy warning label on corrugated cardboard packaging. I recommend you read the article for the specifications of what that means because it's quite technical. Uh, IBA have put out information, no doubt the Brewers Association has put out information, but uh, this has been a long time coming in terms of it was raised as an issue prior to the initial decisions around pregnancy warning labelling. It's been largely driven out of Lyon in New Zealand, um, but safe to say there is now an alternate for the dual colour printing on uh, outer corrugated packaging and you have until I think it's January or February 2024 to now transition from what you were doing to the new label under the new revised rules. So if you are in production or manufacturing or marketing or you have any idea, there's no excuse not to know. There are new requirements and now there's no excuse not to implement them. So it's a very prosaic article. It just I, when I was reading it, you know, I, I was it just made me angry. I'll be honest. Reading this thing, it's such a it's such a common sense solution. Um, so for for people who know the the, the um, pregnancy labelling was brought in straight away, there was an issue with the registration of this print technique on on carton. So so the, it prior wasn't... to final approval, right? Prior to final approval by cabinet, it was pointed out by everyone that this was not going to work. But it still went through, and it, it proved true. And so you know, brewers will know that trying to print these warning labels on corrugated cardboard makes them renders them almost unreadable and unusable which defeats the purpose so the common sense solution is just one color on the outside packaging i think there were 40 or 50 submissions you know the brewers guilds did it you know a couple of the brewing companies the majority of them were from anti alcohol lobby and 
you just basically saw what their strategy is. Um, they want to make every element of alcohol production as expensive as it possibly can. Yeah. Um, and that's why they want to do this. And yes, they do point to some research that highlights, you know, what makes a good warning sign and, you know, that makes legitimate points. But at the end of the day, they just want to make alcohol as expensive as they possibly can and want no favours done for the alcohol industry. And so anyway, in, in the end, I figured that the best way, rather than summarise the arguments or anything like that, the article is just a straight recounting of the steps leading up to it and, and what was found because ultimately the, the rest of it is infuriating and very, very confusing and complicated. But does reiterate why, um, if you are in management at a brewery, how complex the business actually is and how many of these little things that at the time you see an email, you're like, this is my 150th email today. I saw something in there about should we be commenting on economically and legally independent? I don't have time for that today because X piece of machinery is on the fritz or um, Fred didn't turn up for work. And then these things get approved because we do not have dedicated people from every business sending in submissions to add to that voice. And so to reiterate, be part of an association, pick your one that's appropriate to you, um, or, or you need to really pay attention to the co communication that's coming out and when there is an opportunity to engage, participate in the democratic process to make your voice heard because that is the only way changes like this are getting done. And when you talk about the complexity of such what should be a simple thing, the uh, draft variation is a 49-page document. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Trust me, Ian, I know that. I had to read it. You know, so once again, we read it, listeners, so you don't have to. And hopefully, you know, the IBA updates their labelling guidelines and you can go and pick it up and download it and do, a, you know, use that for reference. So, um, yes, I'm sure the IBA is going to update its labelling guidelines. Now, listener, you finish the next line. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to do it yourself. You know what we're going to say. You know who we're going to recommend. If you look down at your phone, you're going to see the number. You do the rest. You do some of the work yourselves, listener. Um, is that, how, how's that for an advertising strategy? Oh, my God. Uh, at least everybody knows that we're talking about rallings, labels, stickers and packaging. Um, but I will say I do genuinely appreciate when there's a really obvious place that I can put the advertisement in the show notes, um, uh, that there's a nice little tie-in. So this week, if you are considering changing any aspect of your label, uh, be it the exterior corrugated cardboard or the label on the can itself, you can reach out to our good friends at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging on 1300 852 235 or email sales at rallingsprint.com.au and see how they can help your, make your brand sing. It's really nice. Like the number of people who just recite, you know, in conversations with me start doing it. So I was just thinking, you know, we were talking about labelling. We probably don't even need to sort of do it because they're sitting in their cars, they're doing their runs going, this is where they're going to do the rallying's ad. This is where they're going to do the rallying's ad. And I thought, eh, let's, let's do something well, different. that was a more than 60-second paid ad. You're welcome, Brad, at rallying's. Um, so we're now sort of what formerly known as be below the fold in other news, but um, just a really sort of interesting one this week. We published a media release uh, for Bintani called Introducing the Bintani Nut Bar. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, um, the media release starts out uh, for more than 20 years, leading American ingredient supplier BSG has rewarded its customers, team members, by hiding a nut confectionery bar in each one-ton pallet of ingredients. Bintani is now reimagining the tradition for the Australian industry in partnership with a much-loved and independently owned Newsly Bar producer, Carmen's Kitchen. And I read this and thought, this is really lovely. Um, it's got some quotes from Louise um, at Bintani. And I thought, oh, this is such a, a nice sort of tie in to the parent company. That sounds lovely. And to be honest, I didn't think much more about it. But the comments online, there has been huge industry engagement 
with this media release with comments from about damn time, it tastes great, this is so wonderful, Two Bays commented, it's gluten-free. Um, so just sort of something that could come across as maybe a bit gimmicky actually was grounded in something that that apparently everybody knew was a thing and they're excited to be part of this thing. And I just thought with all of this heavy industry is not sort of so flash crap. This was just such a lovely story. I was very happy about this. It was a nice one. And, you know, again, we just published it. We didn't, we just published as a media release as we do for people with commercial arrangement. It wasn't news. It was just something. But that's where the best advertising or the best announcements are ones that people engage with. And, you know, it was a really, really interesting to see how people engaged with that little story. Yeah, I'm looking forward to my first ton of um, Bintani malt arriving with the with the nut bar in there. Uh, I'm going to make sure for a change that I'm the person that's over unstacking the pallet so that I can get the nut bar. Um, I, I do wonder what it's going to be like come um, January next year when it's a uh, uh, 35 to 40 degree Brisbane days and um, the pallets travel for a day to get to me and um, so we'll see how the nut bar holds up and has been squished between another 300 kilos of grain um, but I, I think it's a great it's a it's a sweet little tiny thing that that makes unstacking a pallet fun and I should say um, with Easter coming around um, if you do find any a little of your uh, Carmen's Easter eggs in your Vitamin palette or other malt palette. Um, the hashtag is hashtag Bintani Nut Bar. So um, love it. Can't wait to see it. Um, very excited about it. Matt, conscious of um, we're trying to keep it um, nice and tight this week. Um, last week I found a media release uh, momentarily before we jumped on about um, brands being sold by East Ninth, and I sort of said, I bet you Matt knows all about this, but he's on a plane. Um, and then some folks in the Radio Brews News Facebook group, which you should all join, uh, kept me honest and said, yeah, East Ninth uh, went in to wound themselves up in just late last year. Well, yeah. And Matt, you knew all about the ins and outs and could have sold it in three bullet points. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, well, I actually clued to it when Benjamin Cairns, who was the one of the founders of uh, East Knights, Dos Blocos, and you might remember, listeners, it was launched probably a nine or ten years ago in a bottle, in a brown paper bag. Do you remember that, Ian? It was, you know, it was... Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah. So it was a New York apartment or New York warehouse scene. It was, it was, it was one of the early contract brands that really went after a marketing niche, a lifestyle marketing niche um, with, with the craft beer. And, you know, and they, they did pretty well. Um, and then they had uh, um, a ginger beer. And about two years ago, they bought Sample out of liquidation um, or the Sample brand out of liquidation. Um, and so Benjamin Cairns is now the marketing manager for Matilda Bay. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And uh, so I just sort of looked into that. And then also Sample was finally wound up as well with the distribution to, to, to creditors. So um, I think it was just, you know, after a period of time, the, the, the brand had gone as far as he could take it and uh, was able to wind it down. No one was owed, you know, it wasn't an administration or liquidation in that sense. Um, it was just wound up. Um, the brands were sold off. Um, all of the brands were sold off and uh, Benjamin's off still in the, the brewing industry doing some great work for Matilda Bay. And yeah, I, I think, um, and, and, sorry, the, the, and the, the most interesting thing was the point that you made last week that um, the Australian, Australian liquor, liquor marketers um, are getting into it with their own brands as well. Um, to take brands to independent bottle shops um, against Coles and Woolworths. Um, and uh, I thought that was a very interesting thing that, again, shows the ever-changing industry that we're working in. Yeah. So I had a nice segue from that to something else we're going to talk about. But maybe um, in keeping with other things that we've reported on recently, we wanted to give a quick update on the Tribe Breweries Administration. So um, for the same reason we didn't report on the Ballistic Administration until after the second creditors meeting, we haven't um, provided any more information on Tribe. Uh, we know there's a lot of staff who are 
waiting to see what their future looks like. And so, again, we're just sort of holding fire on any formalised reporting until um, there's some more detail coming out. The Tribe Breweries Administration actually incorporates seven different companies, uh, separate PTY LTDs. So to provide listeners with an example of sort of the, again, it's another example of complex um, arrangements, company arrangements, but also financial arrangements as between those companies and funders. So, you know, it's quite a complex uh, beast for want of a better term. The second meeting of creditors of those companies will take place next Tuesday, the 4th of April, 2023. Uh, Bruce News, we've seen a report, a copy of the report uh, um, to creditors from the administrators that really highlighted that despite increasing revenues, there had been a decrease in profitability driven by, uh, and we're just giving you the generics, cost of goods sold increased as a result of increasing volume, increasing warehousing and logistics costs, increasing marketing expenses, increasing labour costs, interest costs associated with the additional debt required to keep the business running. And that's my paraphrasing of that. So, you know, those costs and those increase would be familiar to most listeners for their own businesses. Um, we know that many of the creditors in the tribe situation include industry suppliers who were also impacted by ballistic and also the ATO. And I put that line in there so that we understand uh, just the breadth of these administrations in terms of impact. And I know Ian and I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. So it's not just the breweries who are contracted uh, or who contract to tribe uh, and what might have impacted their businesses, but it's suppliers and it's the ATO. Ultimately, the administrators have recommended a deed of company arrangement, which it describes as broadly, the DOCA proposal provides for continuation of employment for employees and a return to unsecured creditors between four and six cents in the dollar. So, um, you know, we all sort of rolled our eyes a little bit at seven cents in the dollar on ballistic um, and there's a, and Tribe are facing, Tribe's creditors, including employees, are facing um, unsecured creditors, so not employees, but there will be a vote of all creditors of between four and six cents in the dollar in terms of keeping um, Tribe going forward. It's, it's an interesting, because we still haven't seen other than I think the ATO owed about $7 million. Um, we haven't seen a list of the creditors and who's owed what, but it sounds like there's a lot of money. But then there's also a lot of debt anyway um, that the company was carrying. And I think one of the most interesting things that's going to come out of the wash up of this is from the reading of the uh, creditors documents, there's a court case um, or there's certain litigation between the company that owns a significant portion of Young Henry's where who get a lot of their beer brewed through Tribe um, and some of the other uh, debt holders um, because it looked like Young Henry's or the, at least the parent company was looking at buying into Tribe or buying Tribe um, and that fell apart amongst some um, fairly unhappy recriminations from some of the other debt holders. So I think that's going to be one of the interesting things that comes out of it. Um, and we'll wait and see what that brings. But it does, I mean, it does raise this issue, Matt, that, you know, we've sort of has threaded throughout the, the uh, today's discussion, which is actually um, the reason it feels to me that the reason we are not getting so many uh, text messages, uh, phone calls in I want to be off the record about Tribe is because in essence the, the size and scale of Tribe means that we're really talking about sort of private equity large scale financing and so folks tend to think of that less as this is going to impact individuals within the beer industry but it's safe to say that the corporate arrangements do entangle themselves uh, deeply in in the in the brewing landscape in Australia. A lot of small breweries that use Tribe to grow or use as a provider are deeply affected. Yeah, but it's it, it's a different scale of um, administration or uh, potential liquidation. This one, because as you say, it involves the world of high finance. Um, 
And you know, there's thirty, forty million dollars worth of debt being carried by various parties, and uh, you know that's significant. And the piece for me, and and I sort of alluded this uh, to this at the top end of the podcast was. Um, you know, just because they have the ability to produce at volume, uh, it hasn't necessarily meant that their business has been successful and profitable. And so, you know, on a go, and we can get it, the report from the administrators highlights a whole lot of reasons for that. Of course, uh, COVID gets a whole lot of finger pointing. But I think for me, the sort of salient takeaway is, okay, well, let's say this all gets tidied up with a nice bow on it and the poor people who've lost their $40 million now have a company, but all of the employees have stayed on. What makes, and the portion of your costs that come out of this is interest costs won't be so high servicing this debt, but what actually then is going to happen differently given that the... uh, that the market is as tight as it was, that there are all of these other pressures, what's going to happen differently to make this take off and make such a significant profit that those debt holders can be paid back in a reasonable time frame at all? And so I just sort of look at it and go, I don't think this is the last of the administrations we're going to see, but nobody is presenting a cogent case for what is going to be a successful large-scale beer brand that makes a profit in this new market, independent in this new market. Because we look at the share price of Gage, Brick Lane is out there, but Tribe was massive. Yeah, well, you're talking about um, a larger scale brewery and and economies of scale with that. And of course, when you're doing um, larger volumes, um, such as they were, whether you're doing a contract or whether you're distributing your your own brand, um, generally what happens is the margins all slimmer and tighter. Now I'm generalising here, but that is the way it is. So any change in costs of goods or um, distribution costs, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are going to have a they're, they're going to impact on you quicker, and the impact of that is greater then if you are on a smaller scale uh, and you are making less beer but at a higher margin, uh, you've got more buffer room in that than than you would in a situation like this. And that's an interesting point, Ian, because often folks look at even the large international breweries and go, oh, well, they can absorb all these costs, but they can't absorb all of those costs with the same level of profitability because they've already created margins that are so thin to enable them to remain competitive. So I think that's interesting. And we shouldn't forget that there are people, individuals who work at Tribe who are impacted immediately and, you know, we should be thinking of them as well. They're part of the industry. Absolutely. Bits of sort of housekeeping. Um, Brewcod early bird tickets for members close on Friday, uh, 5th of April next week. If you are not a member and want to be a member and get your ticket at the cheapest price you can, now's the time. Uh, beer is a conversation, Matt, you had this week. Yeah, it was an interesting one, a little, a very small uh, little brewery. Um, and it was one, in fact, it's uh, the brewery that Ian's doing some work at at the moment, which had absolutely no reason for me uh, going there. Um, but it was a brewery I've been wanting to speak to for some time. Um, you know, like a lot of breweries, a lot of small breweries, very small, very passionate owner. Um, two blokes went in together, um, and the partnership recently split, which always interests me. You know, because you know, God, how many times do we get a media release? You know, three three people and a dog get together over home brews and decide to open a brewery. Um, and so Shane just sounded like an interesting guy. Um, because on one hand, it's all of the things I warn people not to do um, in, in the podcast, all of the things I used to say, here's a red flag, here's a problem, here's something you need to think about. But when you speak to him, whilst he acknowledges the problems and the mistakes, he is just so optimistic and so positive to, to the point yeah. that I was almost thinking, this I don't want this to go out. I don't want people being sucked in <laughs> thinking that, you know, all you need to be is positive and you're going to make it work. But it was a lovely chat with a lovely guy and it's a really nice little venue um, in Stafford that has a you know, real community feel to it, a real community following. And it was just a nice one to, um, to, to speak to uh, about, you know, a, a fairly warts and all 
um, discussion. You know, his wife didn't want him to open a brewery, and you know now she's seems reasonable. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it, uh, yeah, it, it was just a, a nice little chat. Um, but mileage may vary, listeners. If you're thinking about opening a brewery. Listen to the cons as well as the pros that come out of this one. Um, but no, it, was a, it was a great chat with Shane Meehan from uh, uh, Happy Valley uh, Brewing. And I'll give a little shout out um, to Shane because I said to Matt when he told me he was doing this that he is one of the people who was instantly welcoming and supportive of me when I joined the brewing industry in Australia and kind of, uh, you know, always made time to say hello at events, have a chat. And I, um, you know, really appreciated that. So, you know, when you're looking for allies to support women in the beer industry, I think he did a really great job. Other housekeeping, um, congratulations to Sam Heathwood at Brizu. Some of you will know he's our commercial manager. Just a shout out to Sam if he's listening while on his honeymoon. Sam got married last weekend. So congrats to Sam. Hopefully he's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> dedicated employee, Matt. <laughs> no, 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 that, that wasn't being crude or anything, but you know, he, he's on holidays. He should uh, just be doing other things rather than listening to his work podcast. I think he and Lauren were going to make margaritas, so I think they were looking forward to that. Um, so, Matt, some other housekeeping from you. We just wanted to have a quick chat with our dedicated Razio Brews News Group and let them know that after. 12 years of sort of slogging it out. 13 as years sole, as Bruce News, yeah. 13 years as Bruce News slogging it out as a sole business owner without so much as a holiday, let alone a real break. Um, you are hopefully, if we can swing it, are going to be uh, playing less and less a role in day-to-day uh, -day reporting so that you can have a bit of a real, um, I've been calling it your long service leave. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Anyone that's listened to the, the, the podcast um, will have heard me talk about the challenges of running a small business, and you know, in in, in the terms of brewing, and it, it's, it's certainly something that I understand because you know, being a small business with a very small team, um, it's tiring. And yeah, let, 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 let's be honest. For for want of a better word, um, Brews News is a not-for-profit company. <laughs> you know, anything that it makes goes back into the business. Um, and it, it, any shortfall is made up by me, either, you know, financially or my time and effort. Um, and, you know, when you're passionate about something, you, you give that easily. And you know, I'm just be honest, I'm tired. Um, you know, yeah. And not being able to re meaningfully step out of the business uh, for, for such a long time. And, you know, I've been saying to, to brewers um, privately, and I think um, increasingly on the podcast, if, you know, if you can't take a holiday, then you don't really have a business. Um, you know, if you can't step away from the business and, you know, the, the reality is I've never been able to do that. So, I'm hoping, you know, with your help, Sabrina, um, and, you know, a, a new journalist uh, that I might be able to, you know, step away and, you know, have four or six weeks, hopefully, um, uh, away from the business and think about something else for, for, for six weeks. Um, so, uh, yeah, so listeners, you'll probably be hearing, uh, you know, I'm not sure, we're not sure exactly when that's going to happen. We're still trying to make it happen, but uh, I will be stepping back um a little bit um you know probably from the podcast um and day-to-day uh, -day writing particularly once we get a, a new journalist on and uh yeah then i'll take a break for you know a, as long as sabrina will let me well i guess the point um and the reason we're flagging it here is this group of listeners and those in the radio bruce group are incredibly loyal to bruce news and we didn't want you to see any information like job advertisements for a senior uh senior journalist um that you know came as a shocker out of the blue as matt said we're not exactly sure how it's going to work when it's going to work um how we're going to tie all of that together but the goal the ultimate goal is to give matt a brain break um and also to stretch bruce news to make sure that um we can deliver uh for the industry if you know matt is um hit by the lottery bus as i used to say <laughs> or um or 
or just you know hiking the Alps. So you might see some changes. Uh, some of the things that we've thought about is that beer as a conversation over the next few weeks might um, be less frequent. Actually, and, and just on that, you know, because again, I mean, that's it's, beer as a conversation is a great example. It's one of the things I love most about what we get to do. We get to have these conversations with people that, and, and you know, we, we don't do those for commercial reasons. We pick the conversations that we think provide some insight into the industry. And the questions I ask are the questions that I want to know the answer to. And it just happens that a lot of people in the industry get a lot of pleasure and learn a lot from those questions. But, you know, because we can't run live ads in beer as a conversation the way we do here and give companies the rallings effect, um, you know, we, we basically run the things Bruce like... The Bruce News effect, Matt. Well, the, the Bruce News effect. Um, <laughs> Thank you. That, that we've given to rallings and, and, and others. Um, you know, beer as a conversation loses money for us um, because it, you know, with a producer and people um, teeing it up and all of those sorts of things. So um, that, that's an example of one that I've just done because I love doing it and people love listening to it. Um, but because of the way that advertising works, not a lot of people want to sponsor it. So uh, one of the downsides of me taking a break might be that we run beer as a conversation less frequently. And also, Matt, to be fair, that it really is couched in your voice. So it's not really something that we can... Um, Claire did a, a really great job on beer as a conversation, but it's not really something that... Uh, is easily outsourced by us to another person. It's one of those things where it's your physical time and when your physical time is doing a million other things, like in any business, we have to make decisions about where does time get spent and yep. if if it's and, – and, and this is sort of, you know, the point, but if we're making business decisions that say we shouldn't spend Matt's time on the thing that he's actually passionate about – that's not a great outcome. And so we want to find a way to um, make sure that we get all of the things that Matt loves to do able to be paid for. Uh, so watch this space. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't even putting it that highly. I, you know, again, I, 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 it's just I'm really tired, you know, like a lot of people in the industry, you know, a lot of yeah. uh, founders in the industry, uh, you know, are, are very, very tired. And, uh, you know, I've watched... You know, people take breaks, and, uh, and and then you know, as I said, if you don't you know, say about breweries, if you're not paying yourself to be out of the business, then you don't really have a business. And I need to take some of that advice. Or, Brews News doesn't actually have a business. That's right. And so, Matt, um, since you're back recently, back from Adelaide this week, um, we thought that the Bluestone Yeast uh, Brewery of the Week could be an Adelaide brewery. So before you give us all the details, I will read you the ad. Uh, hi, Derek. Um, Bluestone Yeast can supply pitches of yeast from one litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per milliliter. Whether you are after one-off pitch or looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 0385183172 and talk all things yeast. And I believe you saw Derek in Adelaide, That I did. I had a lovely catch up with Derek and talked about, and I'm not sure how much of it was on the record or off the record, but they're doing very well. They're expanding. Um, you know, same challenges that a lot of businesses have uh, with, with growth and managing growth. And so consequently, he doesn't update his uh, ad for us uh, ever uh, because he simply doesn't have time. He relies on us to do that. Um, but yeah, no, it was very nice to catch up with him. And again, somebody who really gets what we do um, and just understands that you know what we do is important for the industry, and we thank him for that um, as as much as anything else. Um, but yeah, no, my um, well, I was in Adelaide for the IBD conference, uh, which was very interesting. Uh, I went along to amazingly for the first time to. Wow. The Wheat Chief Brewing, uh, you know, Weedy Brewing Corps. Um, I've been to the Weedy a number of times, but not, um, you know, since they put in a brewery. And I, I snuck in as I always do. I never, you know, I, I, I feel very antisocial and rude when I do it because I don't text and say, hey, I'm dropping in. I'd love to see you because I always like to sneak in and, you know, secret shop, see how these things are. But Jade. <laughs> as ever was behind the bar and uh, we had a lovely chat, you know, somebody who's even more opinionated uh, and, and talkative than I am. And 
so I sat and listened to her for uh, about an hour while I enjoyed some beautiful um, weedy beers. And uh, the thing I love about the weedy, you know, even before it was a brewery, it was a great pub. It was a welcoming pub. It was a pub that talked about inclusion before inclusion was uh, almost disposable marketing term. Um, it was a genuinely welcoming place. And since I put a brewery in, even more so. So, you know, the, the fact that they make their own beers and still have the same pub feel, it's everything that I love about, you know, small breweries that are part of their communities and build communities around them. So uh, the, oh. the Weedy Brewing Corps is uh, my brewery of the week. Excellent. And with all of that news and a lot of housekeeping uh, listeners, that wraps up another week of news from the brewing industry. Your hosts have been me, Sabrina Kunz, and regular co-host Ian Watson, and less regular and perhaps even more infrequent co-host Matt Kierkegaard. The show is produced and edited by Joe Helder. We thank Rallings, Labels, Stickers and Packaging and Bluestone Yeast for their support in making this episode possible. Thank you, guys. We'll talk soon. See you next week.